Are you looking for a job? Do you know someone who's looking for a job? Then check out our job board over at revisionpath.com forward slash jobs. Whether you want a full-time job or you're looking for something temporary or freelance, we've got you covered. Lots of jobs this week. Uh, MapZen is looking for a developer community manager. Bandcamp is looking for an editorial designer slash art director. WattTime is looking for a software engineer for clean energy. NASDAQ is looking for a product designer. Gravity Tank is looking for an interaction designer. Buffer is hiring for several different roles, front-end developer, product creator, marketing engineer, data analyst, and customer researcher. And Revision Path is looking for staff writers. So check out the Revision Path job board at revisionpath.com forward slash jobs and find your next job today. And if you're looking for more jobs, then become a member of our Slack community and join the jobs channel. See you there. You're listening to the Revision Path Podcast, a weekly showcase of the world's black graphic designers, web designers, and web developers. Through in-depth interviews, you'll learn about their work, their goals, and what inspires them as creative individuals. Here's your host, Maurice Cherry. Welcome to the Revision Path Podcast. My name is Maurice Cherry, and before we get into this week's interview, I want to talk about our sponsors, Facebook Design, MailChimp, and Hover. Facebook Design isn't just about building one product or solving one type of design problem. They design for a huge swath of different audiences over a number of different industries. And not only that, Facebook invests in building and teaching designers using the best tools for the job, and they care about the broader design community and giving back. Want to learn more about what Facebook Design does? Check them out at facebook.com forward slash design. MailChimp is the best software out there for sending marketing emails, automated messages, and targeted campaigns. Join more than 10 million people who use MailChimp to design and send 600 million emails every day. Sign up today at MailChimp.com. When you have a great idea, you want to secure a great domain name for it, and that's where Hover comes in. Hover makes it easy for you to find that domain name and get it up and running with no hassle and no heavy-handed upselling. So go ahead and grab yourself a domain today and use the promo code REVISIONPATH and save 10% off your purchase. Here's our Patreon fundraising campaign update. Uh, we're at 32 patrons right now for a combined total of $206 per month. Again, a huge thanks for everyone that has pledged their support for the show. I really do appreciate that. Uh, if you want to become a patron of Revision Path and get access to some great perks like special giveaways, early access to future episodes, and free Revision Path swag, head on over to patreon.com forward slash revision path and make that happen. Pledge levels are super affordable. They start at just $1 per month, and it's a great way to support the show on a regular basis. And speaking of giveaways, I want to announce the two winners that we have for our Sprint Book Giveaway. Uh, if you've been looking at the blog, if you remember, we got uh, some release copies of Sprint, which is this great new design book from Google Ventures. One of the copies is going to our Patreon patrons, and another one is going to people who entered the giveaway that was on our Facebook page and on the website. So our Patreon winner is Jessica Ivins. Congratulations, Jessica. I'm going to try to get your book out to you this week. And our, our website giveaway winner is Patrick H. So again, thanks a lot so much for uh, being a part of this giveaway. Both of you, I'll get your books out this week. And, you know, this is our third anniversary. And I have to tell you, you know, the third anniversary for Revision Path really snuck up on me. Like, I've been busy. I've been working. I've been getting things together for the show. Of course, we got the new sponsorship. And I just kind of blanked on it being the third anniversary. So I didn't do anything about soliciting questions or anything like that but in our slack community someone had a really great idea uh which was to have me interviewed for an episode because i do so much with interviewing other people why not have someone interview me and you know what that's what this episode is about so for this week's interview uh it's gonna be with me <laughs> i'm being interviewed by brandy brown who is a software engineer and a comedian in Minneapolis, Minnesota. She's also a member of our Slack community. So this should be fun. Let's go ahead and start the show. Hi, I am Brandy Brown. I am going to be interviewing Maurice Cherry today uh, in a very special interview. I thought that it's only fitting that someone gets to interview him as a black designer on his own Yay. podcast. So here we are. <laughs> 
So why don't you tell your listeners who you are and all the things you do? My name is Maurice Cherry, and I like to tell people that I'm a designer because there are, like you said, there are a lot of different things I do. I teach, so oftentimes that means I'm designing courses or designing curriculum or designing exams and things or exercises for students to take. I have a design studio here in Atlanta called Lunch, which is a multidisciplinary creative studio. So we're designing websites and email marketing things and branding templates. We're doing a bunch of different design stuff. Of course, I design podcasts. I have this podcast here, Revision Path. And I also do some uh, strategic consulting for some big brands, usually about diversity or about just kind of the work that they're doing and how they can do more outreach to underrepresented communities. That's kind of a new thing that I've been been doing lately. Okay, let's start <laughs> with podcasting since that's what we're on. Okay. <laughs> how did you decide to start podcasting? Like, what was the lead up to that? How'd you get ramped up? So I've actually been podcasting for about maybe a little over 10 years now. When I started my very first podcast, it was in 2005 on Odeo, which is uh, one of the precursors to Twitter. At least uh, I think Ev Williams, the, the creator of Twitter, started Odeo before that. And Odeo was just kind of like this short audio message service thing, but you could also record longer podcasts and things of that nature on it. And I always kind of had an interest in it here in Atlanta. We had the Georgia Podcast Network. We had pod camps and things of that nature. So as pod camps started to, well, as podcasting, I should say, started to rise during that time, I had become more and more interested in just getting on the mic and talking. It was just kind of a natural thing. It saved me from typing or anything like that. And I felt that I had a pretty unique voice. And then, you know, podcasting kind of died out for a while. It really just started to get a resurgence, I feel, within the past maybe two to three years. And of course, with Serial coming out that really sort of boosted podcasting's profile to mainstream America. And then that's really how I got back on the podcasting train, ended up getting some new equipment and just started recording. That's pretty much it. So you have a revision path and then you also, and this is a question that someone sent, you also had your tea podcast. And yes. the question is, and this is a good question because I wondered it myself is one, what motivated you to do the tea podcast? And two, what was your scheduling of that? How did you manage that with this podcast and the rest of your life? Okay. So the tea podcast was called the year of tea. It's actually still up and available at the year of And what the goal was there for me was to do daily short tea reviews of, you know, just a different tea every day. The, the episodes are pretty short. They're each less than five minutes each. They're each less than five minutes. <laughs> and the goal for me to do that was really twofold. The first was the fact that I had a bunch of tea. I have like a, a tea, you know, when you're in your kitchen and you have like one of those cabinets that's right next to the stove or whatever. I had one of those and it was just full of tea that I had accumulated over the years. And I didn't want to throw it away because I bought it. But I'm like, I really, you know, I know that I, there were times when I would buy tea and just chuck it in there and never get back to it. And so I said, you know, I really need to find a way to actually go through and catalog all this tea. I thought about doing a written tea journal, but that just felt like boring. Like I'd be like an old maid if I did that. So because I was already doing the show, I figured why not just do a tea podcast, searched around to see what other tea podcasts were that were out there. I thought they were mostly whack and boring. They were, I, first I thought they were very long. They were like 10 minutes, 20 minutes and going over, you know, how to brew and everything like this. And I just thought that's, that's boring. Like, I don't know if anyone that's really interested in tea is going to sit through all of that because people are going to brew their tea in different ways and stuff. Uh, so the first reason was just to catalog what I had. The second reason was to kind of demystify some of that sort of, you know, mystery, I guess, around tea. Tea is a beverage that is, I think it's the second most drank beverage in the world next to water. But here in the United States, you know, we're kind of more of a coffee culture, not really much about tea. When you see tea marketed here in the States, it's usually like a health drink or it's something for women and little girls. You know what I mean? Like it's not something that everyone can approach and drink in the same way. Whereas you go, you know, to England or to India or to China or Japan or even, you know, the parts of Africa, 
you know, tea is just such a regular part of everyday life. And there's not this kind of, I guess, I want to say like there's these weird gender roles or marketing kind of terms that are put on it. Tea is just tea. Everyone drinks tea. Right. So I wanted to kind of, you know, shed some of the mystery around that and show people that tea could be very approachable. There's a lot of different types of teas out there. It's not all Lipton or Arizona. You know, there's a lot of loose leaf teas out there. So I wanted to give information on how to brew these teas. But I also reviewed, you know, bottled teas and and kombucha and, you know, just all kind of different tea products throughout the project. And uh, we got to 365 days and people wanted a second year. I didn't. The scheduling was kind of rough. <laughs> Mostly I would try to schedule the shows like I try to do them all in a day and then just release them out during the week. Because, again, they were really short. They were like five minutes. So it's not like I was spending a ton of time in production to get everything done. The intro and outro of the show were always the same. All I had to do was just do my review and run it through Audacity filters. And there it is. So sometimes that would happen. I mean, I'm not going to say that every week was like that. There were definitely some times I woke up at four in the morning like, oh, I got to record an episode today because it just happens. I'm human, you know. Uh, the episodes always came out at 8 a.m. because I wanted them to be this morning thing that you wake up with. So mostly I just I just tried to find a way to squeeze at least 30 minutes a day to dedicate just to the tea podcast. Sometimes it was more than that. Sometimes it was less. Like, for example, if I had to go on a work trip or something, I would schedule them out in advance so they would just publish when I'm not, you know, sitting here in front of my computer. So there was some scheduling that went on. I would say maybe 25% of the episodes were pre-scheduled in that way. But a lot of them, I really just either sat down the, the night before or something, drank it, reviewed it, posted it up, and that was it. And it got, you know, easier as I kept doing it, you know, kind of got into a rhythm of what to write in the show notes, how to take the pictures. You'll even see like the pictures evolve and change in quality as I go through the year. Um, so it just was sort of a gradual process. It was a growing process. And brands started to find out about it. They really liked it. They would send me tea. So that was great. That was tea that I didn't have to buy. That was always good. And companies are still sending me tea, even though I tell them I'm not doing the show anymore. You can send me your tea and I'm just going to drink it. But, you know, it's up to you and they'll send it anyway. So, yeah, that's kind of why I wanted to do that project. I wanted to really sink myself into doing one thing for a year and seeing what I would learn from that and what I could, you know, teach people about. Yeah, I'm a, I come from a very tea drinking family. We have over our stove <laughs> so much tea, so much loose leaf tea <laughs> just from all over the place. If you could only have three teas for the rest of your life, what would those three teas be? I would have a yerba mate. It could either be a regular green yerba mate or roasted. I would have Earl Grey, probably a, a white Earl Grey. Uh, that's a little bit lighter, so more of the citrus flavor from the bergamot comes out. And for a third tea, oh, some type of a chai, preferably like a really spicy chai, like a, um, like a spicy masala or even spicier than that sort of chai I would go with. Okay. Nice choices. I would have gone with the Lapsang Souchong. I just love it. <laughs> I don't know. I, I know that one's a very divisive tea among people. I like that one too. And I've, I've tried it. I like that smoky flavor, but if I'm thinking, you know, every day, right. I would get tired of it every day. Yeah. No, that's, I'd have to switch it that's up. That's absolutely fair. <laughs> In terms of other, I know you said you didn't want to do another tea podcast. Do you have any other podcast things you're kind of exploring you might want to do? I have several podcasts that I would like to do. I think it's a matter of both time and money. Cause it's not, I mean, it's, it's not cheap to put on a podcast, at least to, I guess, the standards that I would want. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's not cheap to do it. Because, I mean, when I, when I say to the standards of what I want to do it, I mean, designing the graphics, getting the scheduling, getting the audio production and everything together. I certainly know that there are people that can sit down and just record it on their phone. But now that I've been doing this so long, I tend to be really specific about audio quality and and stuff like that. So And audio hosting. I mean... With some audio hosts, the more shows you have, the more you have to pay right. for space. So it's not like a one price fits all sort of thing. But there are shows I would like to do. I would love to do a quiz show, like a, a quiz podcast where you have maybe some of your favorite 
internet celebrities and you ask them questions and they win prizes. Maybe the prizes are money that goes to their charity, a charity of their choice or something like that. I'd like to do a quiz podcast. I really wanted to do a podcast with my mom and um, like do like a mother to son kind of podcast, mainly because, you know, with everything that's going on in the news lately as it relates to police violence and crime and, and things of that nature, I wanted to do a show that was just like me and my mom. Maybe we're talking about current events. Maybe we're relaying family anecdotes. I don't think that show will ever happen, <laughs> but I would like to do it. Um, I'm very tech savvy. She's not. And she's certainly not one to kind of get online and just air her business like that. Yeah. So I would love to do that show. I had a name for it and everything. And she's like, nah. I don't want to do that. I think I quoted something <laughs> similar to my grandma and my mom who was just like, no, she will not do that. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, I, w- I would love one of those, too. What podcast do you listen to? And then we're going to kind of circle back to Revision Path. What podcast do I listen to? I'm actually going to open my Pocket Cast app because I'm thinking what I have. I just started clearing some out because I feel like some people went on break mm-hmm. for the holidays and they just didn't come back, which is a good – I guess that's a good strategy. You're like, oh – you know, we're going to be gone for the holidays. We'll be back later. And then they don't come back. Although one of those podcasts did come back today, and that's About Race, which is a, um, a podcast from Panopoly, I believe, which is our na- Slate. Oh, our national conversation. Yeah, our national conversation yeah, about conversations about race. Yeah, with Baratunde, Raquel Cepeda, and Tanner Colby. I usually like that show only because I feel like it's it's good to get that kind of multi-person perspective on the news particularly as it relates to race so i like that show i like another round with heaven and tracy i think it's a really fun show i am blown away by their meteoric rise since they started like it's inspiring to see as a black podcaster to see them really like take off as as well as they have and the caliber of the guests that they have is always on point i think it's a really fun show i look forward to that show every week i listen to on the Grid, which is a design podcast, which is funny. I don't listen to many design podcasts. I find a lot of them very boring, but I do listen to On the Grid. Andy, Matt, and Dan, really cool guys. They've had me on the show twice, I believe. Yeah, they've had me on the show twice. And it's good because they talk about design, but it's not in an overly didactic, boring sort of way. Each of the guys has their own personality. And yeah, it's three white guys talking about design on a podcast, which is very common for a design podcast, but they at least inject some humor into it. Sometimes they inject current events into it. So it's not just about design, like it's about design, but in other sorts of ways. So I really enjoy that show. I listen to the Bodega Boys, Jesus Nice and the Kid Marrow. It's a really funny show. I don't know if I like them more on Complex or this, I'm still kind of... Yeah, I like them more the on Complex. Still out. I listen to all of these, and so I'm just like nodding my head here. <laughs> yeah, the verdict is still out. I like it, though. I mean, it's good to have on in the in the background. I think it's so good because, one, you can tell they have a very good rapport. Two, you can tell that a lot of the language is... I want to say it's almost like you have to have listened to the shows to get it. Mm-hmm. Like there's a certain level of, of presupposed knowledge that you have to have. There's a bit of a steep learning curve. Yeah. To get the show. Or even follow them um, on Twitter, too. Right. So I like that kind of challenge of listening because they're rapid fire. I mean, you'll blink and you'll miss something. I like that kind of a, of a show. Of course, I listen to The Read because I feel like everyone that's black that has a podcast listens to The Read because they're like <laughs> the gold standard as it relates to reach, I think. They've been around. I think we have the same like anniversary and stuff. Like we've been around the same amount of time, Revision Path and The Read. But just to see them do like the live shows and to see both of them grow as celebrities in their own right outside of the internet and branch into other forms of media is inspiring. I really like their show. It's very irreverent. It's about pop culture, which I try to follow and often don't. But it's at least good to get <laughs> to get that kind of weekly recap. I listen to Startup which is from Gimlet Media. I started listening to that when they first started the first season, which was about them really starting up the show itself. And then the second season, they focused on a company called Dating Ring and how they were building their company. And then they just wrapped up this mini season 
that was more looking at how Gimlet has grown. Gimlet is the parent company of startup, but looking at how Gimlet has grown since they uh, really started from episode one. So I listened to that. I listened to Slack Variety Pack, of course, because I like Slack. I've liked Slack since they were tiny spec and they had Glitch, the MMORPG. I like how much of Glitch has kind of migrated itself into Slack in terms of graphics and name and uh, no, I'm sorry, graphics and sounds and stuff like that. It has a, a level of whimsy to it that I enjoy. But the Slack Variety Pack, I think they also have managed to capture that feeling within the show itself in terms of how they uh, switch between different topics, how each of the individual segments are their own like separate things that you can listen to. I like that part about it. It's very digestible in that way. And I listened to the Of 10 podcast, which is by Will Lucas. The Of 10 podcast, he interviews prominent voices in tech that he feels that people should know, like he thinks they should be household names. So we've had some of the same guests, Christy Tillman, Kimberly Bryant, for example. But he's interviewed a lot of people that are in Silicon Valley, mostly. I wouldn't say mostly, but I think this season that's what it's been. But our shows kind of have a similar kind of slant in that case because we both talk to tech people although i feel like revision path is geared much more towards design than tech which is a distinction i'm kind of struggling with because i do interview developers so it's not totally design but i consider revision path a design podcast which is still kind of working working on wrapping my brain around that and that's pretty much it that's what i listen to again i've got some in here that just haven't updated and i've kind of cleaned them out so that's what I've got so far. All right. Yeah, those are a lot of the podcasts I listen to, but I did not know about the Up 10 one, so I'm going to definitely check that one out. Let's talk about Revision Path and just how that grew. I guess, like, take me back to, like, when you started it and just how you've grown it and where you want to take it. Okay. So Revision Path, I first had the idea for it in 2006. I was doing the Black Weblog Awards, and it was like about the third year of really getting it up and going. And I I had a category that was called best design blog, which is basically the best blog design that was out there. And I knew other black designers like myself, but I didn't feel that we were certainly getting the same level of opportunities or shine or recognition as some of our, you know, non-melanated peers in the industry. And so I wanted to do something which showcased us but I just never really had the time and the bandwidth to pull it off. I mean, during those years leading up to when I finally started Revision Path in 2013, I was either working or in grad school or the Black Weblog Award was taking up a lot of time or I was teaching. Like I was always doing something else. And this idea just kept getting put on the back burner further and further. And it wasn't until 2013 that I really kind of had the time to do it. Little known fact, actually started Revision Path with another person. We kind of, we kind of both had the idea, and I wanted to move forward on it. And we came up with a bunch of, of uh, names and stuff for it. And Revision Path was the name that kind of st- stuck. But then as it got closer to me trying to really launch it, that person kind of dropped out, like they kind of went AWOL, and I just had to move forward on my own on launching it and getting it up and running. So we launched in February of 2013. Didn't have the first interview until, I want to say sometime in March, because it took a little time to get a tiny bit of traction. And even then, they were just text interviews that I was doing. Some of them were text. Some ended up being audio. And then once I finally decided to make the switch from text to audio, that was about a year ago. Well, a little bit over a year ago. That was in March of 2014 or so when I started doing that. And so what I did was I took all the audio interviews that I had and just went with those as pre-launch. There were about 15 interviews. And that was sort of what I pre-launched with and then kind of kept it going from there. So now we're up to episode 130, which is this episode. And uh, it's been going strong ever since. So, yeah, you've you've done a ton of episodes. Is there an episode or an interview or interviews that really just surprised you? Like you didn't you know, you did your research on the person and you they said something that just, wow, blew your mind. I think every interview always has the capacity to surprise me, only because these are people that I've never talked to before. With the exception of maybe, I don't know, four to five people, 
everyone that I interview is a total stranger when we get on the mic. So everything that, that ends up happening ends up being a surprise to me. I don't come into it with any sort of preconceived notions unless I already know the person. So most of the interviews have been surprising with that. You learn something. I mean, you're learning about the person as you're interviewing them. And yeah, there might be some research that I do beforehand so I know their work history, but knowing their work history and then hearing them talk about it and other sort of details and things come out, it's a totally different thing. It's a totally different experience. So it adds, you know, a texture to their work history and just their body of work in general. And that is surprising with every interview that I've done. Um, So each one has its own special little eccentricity with that. I'm assuming that, you know, you hear names and somebody will perhaps toss you some names, but how do you, you're getting up there with, you know, a hundred and some people. How do you find people? How do you, what's your process for trying to locate new talent, new interviews? Um, So I have a list of, I think right now it might be about 1500 or so people. Like I keep a regular running list again from people that uh, suggest interviews Whenever I wrap an interview with someone, I always ask them to suggest people and do a warm intro uh, for people that would be good to have on the show. So I always end up adding to the list with every interview that I do. And then folks will recommend things. I'll just find out about people through a Google search or a LinkedIn search. People will send me press releases of folks that I should know more about. So the names come from a number of different sources. It's not all just from me. I would say maybe about 60% is just me looking and searching. But the community is starting to do a really great job of just referring people to me that they think would be good for me to talk to. Now, it gets a little tricky because I think of the nature of, I want to say because of the nature of media coverage around STEM, it becomes tricky because everything gets lumped into that acronym. Mm -hmm. I mean, even like if it is tangentially related to technology, it gets lumped into that. So, for example, copywriters or social media people or something like that. And I'll have to kind of draw the line and say, well, you know, we're really a podcast for designers and developers. So if you're a designer or a developer and you're kind of in that realm of digital maker like that, Mm -hmm. we would want to talk to you. We, me, I'd want to talk to you and have you on the show. So there are people that I have had to say, well, from what I'm looking at, from what you're telling me and what I'm seeing, it's just all you've done social media campaigns. That's not really the focus of the show. That's not really what the audience is is tuning in to listen to. So I wouldn't have that person on. So there are people that I have had to turn away only because they just didn't fit what the show was about. And so even when people try to describe the show, it ends up getting a number of different descriptions, most of which I feel are not accurate. Like... I've heard the show being described as interviewing black people in tech in Silicon Valley, which it's not. Mm-hmm. I've heard it called a tech podcast, which is not. But unfortunately, because of how podcasts are categorized within podcast directories, iTunes is the only one that has a design category. The rest of them have like science and technology. So it ends up getting lumped into that because there's no arts category or something like that. I personally refer to Revision Path as a design podcast because the majority of the people that I interview are designers. I'm a designer and it's for the design community. Now, if you happen to be a developer and I talk to a developer and you get something out of it as a listener, that's great. I consider that a benefit. You know, it's, it's, it's a feature. It's not a bug. But for me, in my mind, I'm thinking it's a design podcast because there's not a lot of... Actually, there's I don't think there are any other design podcasts out there that focus on black designers Mm -hmm. as a whole. There's a lot of black tech podcasts out there, not a lot of black design podcasts. So I like Revision Path to sort of stand alone in that distinction. Yeah, I think that that's interesting that you bring up who does and doesn't really fit with what you're doing on the site. Because I have a friend who is a UX designer, and he's basically saying like everybody's a designer in a way. And it's really interesting how you have to distinguish this because we were talking about I was talking about how you know for example DeRay was invited to Twitter and why that was a bit of a problem versus uh, and he was just like well you know he is a designer of social movements he's like I see your point but you know looking at it that's a stretch I'm sorry that's a a stretch no I was like 
the kind of the point is that you're overlooking people who are traditional designers who are black who are within the community to go for someone who is an outlier, even if you're using this stretch of the design you know, definition. Yeah, and I mean, and in no way, I mean, for people that are listening, I mean, shout out to DeRay. There, in no way am I saying that to belittle or put down any of the work that he has done, but there does become a problem where black people, at least when it comes now for what I see with quote unquote diversity mm-hmm. in technology and things like that, where people of prominence tend to be interchangeable, despite that not being their particular focus. So yeah, I'll, I'll give you a prime example. There is a design conference, which I shall not name. There's um, <laughs> a design conference that was looking for black designers. And so, I mean, I get conferences, they email me all the time and they want to know, well, who should I reach out to? Who would be good? Blah, 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 blah. I give a few names, et cetera. And they, you know, would respond back and say something. Oh, well, I was thinking someone more like blank, but blank is a journalist. I'm like, okay, so you want a journalist at a design conference because, and oftentimes it's because they're looking for a big name, right? Looking for a, a, a name that will draw people in. They're looking for a name that will sell tickets. Uh, they're looking for a name that has an audience. And unfortunately, a large swath of black designers don't really have those three things because we're just not that well represented mm-hmm. in the industry media. And I, and I want to be clear by saying we're not represented in the media because I think we are represented in the industry. The problem that comes is that the media does not reflect that. When you look at the media like conferences and blogs and podcasts and magazines and books and stuff, you don't see black people. You see people of color probably. You'll see, you know, some Asian people. You may see a Hispanic person here or there, but you certainly do not see black people kind of reflected back. And so the perception is that, oh, well, maybe we're just not in the industry. Maybe we're just not doing good work or that level of work, but that's not true. We're just not being shown or recognized at that same level. Yeah. And I guess that kind of will help me segue into a conversation about conferences. You know, (laughs) I'm in your Slack group, the Revision Path Slack. Uh, Shout that out. We'll talk about that later when you give your plugs. Let's say that you had an unlimited budget and the resources you needed. What do you want to see in a conference? What kind of conference would you put on? That's a good question. I would not put on, I think, a explicit design conference. And the reason for that is because I think that there needs to be more fellowship first before we really start looking at, I mean, I don't know, not not saying that we couldn't look at the development of skills. There's certainly a number of, of conferences out there that already do that, that accomplish that. I would want to do a type of event that would just bring together black designers really to fellowship, to hear keynotes, to just have opportunities to network with each other, because that is so missing among us in the industry. We are out there, but we're not, there's not a collective of us, I think, in across, you know, the country, I would say even across the diaspora, there's just not that connection. So if I had the unlimited funds, I would want to do something along those lines. I don't want to say it would be like, I don't know, what's a what's a conference like that, like a TED conference, something to that effect, where it's just an opportunity for people to listen from other folks that are in the industry, also have the opportunity to network and talk to people. But it's not like a strict design conference where people come with, you know, you're going to learn about this latest polyfill, or you're going to learn about this latest framework. You can learn about that anywhere else. I would want this to be a place where you can come and feel affirmed in your cultural identity as well as a designer. So you can get to see other people that look like you, that are doing work that you're doing, that are doing work that you want to do just to have that opportunity. Really the the Black and Design Conference that happened last year in October at uh, Harvard Graduate School of Design really sort of put that, that seed in my mind of what that type of event would look like because it was geared mostly towards an architecture slash urban planning type of crowd, even though it was called Black and Design. Granted, both of those are design, but I know people that didn't want to go because they didn't feel that it was about their type of design, which might be UX or UI or graphic or web or something like that. But me going and just being in that space to see other people of color and the work that they're doing on these grand scales and just feeling affirmed in who you are as a black person and who you are as a designer 
is a feeling that I have not gotten at any other event that I've been to that I think is just hard to replicate. So doing an event that really would affirm black designers and give them the opportunity to come together and fellowship and learn from each other. You know, there's that whole saying about iron sharpens iron to have that opportunity to really get together and network and fellowship with other black designers in the industry to, to forge those bonds is so important. So I would want an event that does that. I just think there's, I mean, you got, you got lynda.com, you've got Treehouse, you've got Code Academy. You have opportunities to learn stuff anywhere else for free for the most part. I wouldn't want to do a conference that's just about that. I would want to do something that just brings us together, almost like a family reunion of sorts that brings us together and gives us the opportunity to learn where we are and who we are and what we're doing. And where do you kind of thinking of that? And as someone who is in Minnesota where, I mean, honestly, I'm in Minneapolis. It's still not the most diverse place. It's never going to be anywhere near like Atlanta or you know New York. How do you, want to you know reach out or how are you trying to reach out or are you to people in kind of far-flung places to black folks in these flung places and kind of bring them together is that your vision for your slack group or what are you hoping to i would say uh for the slack group that's kind of a a um that's certainly an, an easy mission to try to undertake because it's digital people can access the the internet from anywhere i mean when you talk about bringing people together physically Within a space, there are a number of different logistics that come with that, and I don't have the platform or the funds to make <laughs> either of those kinds of things happen. But with a Slack group, at least people can join. They can network and fellowship with each other. They can um, you know, get to know each other, just learn what other folks are doing. I think that's a, a great idea. I'm also you know, doing work through my clients and through other agencies just as outreach to these communities. So like I said, a lot of conferences will contact me and say that they are looking for, you know, people of color for attendees or they're looking for people of color for their call for proposals or calls for speakers or things like that. So I try to introduce folks that way to these experiences that they may not know of or may not have had access to any other way. There's also companies that are just looking for diverse people to apply for jobs and things. So I'm always trying to make sure that, you know, of course we have the job board up, we have a jobs channel in our Slack community giving them the opportunity to know about this type of work that they may not have seen in their regular normal job search. I try to put a focus on remote work so people can work from anywhere because I know everyone is not in New York, D.C., you know, Los Angeles, Bay Area, etc. That's sort of what I'm trying to work on now. I would love to be able to form a partnership with, you know, like a larger brand to be able to do something where we could do physical types of, of meetings, maybe like a a, a road show of some sort going from city to city and doing meetups to sort of build that network. I would like to do something like that, but I, I need a much bigger platform to kind of make that happen. Okay. Let's switch gears and kind of just talk about like your personal career and your career growth. I've kind of been listening to, you know, your talk, listening to your talk about like where are all the black designers. So I kind of got your background there, but just, I noticed on your site on lunch that you do different types of design and there are different types of designs. We talked about strategy. We talked about branding. Are there any of those that you're really wanting to break out in this year or just really wanting to, you know, I'm going to focus on that the most, like I'm competent to do them all very capable, but this is the one I really want to focus on this year. Probably more digital strategy with lunch. I mean, before lunch, my company was called 318 media and it was sort of a, well, to be honest, it was basically like a, a web mechanic shop, you know, like you needed something built, we could build it for you. You needed something tuned up. We could do that for you. We could make a graphic. We could do this or that. But there are so many of those types of shops available. And I just felt like with the amount of experience that I've had with brands and, and with other companies that I could offer more than just a set of hands to my clients, I could offer, you know, my knowledge and my skill and my network. So we really just rebranded this year to lunch and then started along that realm of doing digital strategy. We call ourselves a multidisciplinary creative firm because there are these different things that we can do. But the most thing that I would like to break through with is the strategy part, because I feel that personally, that's something that I'm very good at. That's something that I've kind of been doing now with clients is 
talking with them about how they can use the web to, to accomplish their business goals or ways that they can reach out to other communities to help their business goals. I found that to be a lot more fulfilling than just doing a WordPress theme or a MailChimp template, like being able to design a company's culture or being able to really help a company reach out to other communities so they can hire more people of color or they can talk to more people of color. Like these are the types of problems that we have in our industry that are these big problems. I'm able to use design and strategy to help solve them. So that's really what I want to break out more into. And I feel like I'm starting to do that. It's still, I think, at least here in Atlanta, and that's probably just by proxy of being in Atlanta, it still feels like an uphill battle. I don't know if it would be the same if I were in New York or or DC or something like that. I mean, community here, I'm not sure if it's ready for that just yet. Mm-hmm. And I might be speaking from a, a really naive point of view with that, but I would like to really go more into strategy, doing more digital strategy, working with with brands and working with, with other large entities to help use design to accomplish some of their business goals. Yeah, I come from uh, an advertising background, somewhat worked in some dev shops, and it seems to me, and I was a brand strategist, that a lot of the strategy, it's this weird place where like the web dev shops are kind of slowly meeting the ad agencies. And so mm-hmm. places where they have, like Minneapolis has like an insanely strong ad community. So I see a lot of strategy jobs and I see a lot of strategy focused and, and the dev shops kind of are being forced to meet them in the middle. And I don't know about Atlanta's ad scene, but I don't either. <laughs> <laughs> so I mean, that seems to be kind of one of the things where I was like, oh, well, strategy was a big thing in advertising. And now it's kind of blowing up in web. Yeah. Like I don't have any agency experience. And so a lot of agencies here, I'm guessing probably won't even look my way because of that. I mean, I've certainly had opportunities where I've tried to reach out to agencies just to get people on the show. And it's like, and you are who again? Why are we talking to you? I don't know if it's like that necessarily with the job market as well, but certainly I would need to kind of get, at least here in Atlanta, kind of a better feel for what that culture might look like. So like I'm saying right now, I don't know if the culture is there. It may be here. I just haven't seen it yet or tapped into it yet. You know, time will tell. I mean, most of my clients are not in Atlanta. Mm -hmm. So that's probably why I feel like I want to do more strategy type things just in general, because I'm already doing that with other big companies that are not in the city. So when you're talking about strategic, you mentioned you did strategic consulting about diversity. What kind of things are you doing then? So I'm doing things like, so for example, with one client, we sort of spent the last few months really taking a good look at their internal workforce and seeing, one, what their workforce numbers were. So that meant looking at EEO data. That meant doing surveys to kind of get an idea of what the makeup of their of their team looks like. And so that's by gender, ethnicity, age, and some other sort of demographics. So that's sort of starting out from there. Taking that and then juxtaposing that with whatever the hiring goals are for that quarter or for the year and seeing, okay, based on where we are now and looking at what we're trying to fill, what is sort of a reasonable goal to try to hit as it relates to bringing in, you know, more diverse folks. So with that, once we sort of have that arbitrary goal in play and keep in mind, the goal is malleable just based on sort of, you know, who the the applicants are that we find it also means where are we looking to try to find those people? Because for some companies, they do what I like to call social hiring, where they might have a position open and then they'll just email their employees and say, hey, if you know anyone who's interested, let them apply. And so it becomes like this friend of a friend thing where, yes, the, the position might be open on the web and it might have, I don't know, 500 resumes people have sent in for it. The person that's probably going to get the better chance is the person who knows someone who works there that's gotten the referral. And so with that, you sort of end up further homogenizing whatever the current makeup of the company looks like. And that is also just kind of extrapolated from, you know, studies that say that white people don't have that many, you know, people of color as friends or in their social circles. So it it ends up being this this sort of I don't want to say it's a self-defeating 
kind of prophecy, but it's like you want to find more diverse people, but you can't keep using the same methods that you've been using because that's just not working. But I say once we have those goals in play, then we look at, well, what communities do we need to look at? Are we looking at, for example, women of color in tech? Are we looking at revision path? Are we looking at lesbians who tech? Are we looking at out in tech? Are we looking at society of Hispanic professional engineers? Are we looking at Nesby? Like, where are these other places that we're looking that will have, you know, a diverse group of people that are looking for work that we can sort of then sort of pitch these jobs to or, or something like that? It's that sort of strategy that I've been sort of doing now for, I'd say, the past six months now. I've been doing that for a number of clients. And it's it's a different level of engagement for each client. Some are are full force and they're already going into, you know, like hiring fairs or going to HBCUs to talk to to students there. Some are still kind of trying to get the strategy in play, like seeing how that would look internally, where people would, would go to try to find, you know, diverse candidates. So it's still a bit of an uphill battle. And I think it's because no one wants to get it wrong. No one wants to be that example that's in Fast Company or Quartz or Wired of them like completely fucking it up. They all want to get it right the first time. And I try to tell them like, you're not going to get it right the first time. Like you just try to do the best that you can, but you know, don't be obtuse. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It's, it's just one of those things where I feel like there's still that hesitation and that trepidation. And also, I mean, the larger the company is, the harder that is to accomplish. I know that there are a lot of, I don't want to call them pundits, but there's certainly a lot of people on Twitter that will just say, you know, oh, well, you know, people of color, just hire them. And that's a nice truism. Yeah, I mean, yeah, if you if you want people of color, just hire them. Sometimes it is that simple. If you have a 500-person company, it might not be that simple. It just might not be. I mean, not everyone is looking for work. That's kind of one, unfor- I won't say it's an unfortunate thing, but that's just one kind of aspect. Not everybody's looking for work. Some of these companies are not trying to poach people from other companies. They're really just looking for folks that are available right now. The other sad part is that even when these people of color come in, people of color or people that are coming from diverse backgrounds, anywhere along the diversity spectrum, inclusion is the second part of that. So just because you've brought them in, what is it about your company culture that's going to make them want to stay? Mm -hmm. And some companies have not thought that far ahead They're still trying to get the people in the door. They haven't thought that far ahead about really examining their own culture and seeing what makes people want to stay, what makes people want to leave, making sure that their workforce is good for anyone that wants to work there, making sure that they are accommodating and, you know, friendly and nice. No one's a jerk, that sort of thing. That's sort of the flip side of the the diversity conversation. And some companies are further along than others as it relates to inclusion. But then that just depends on what their goals are. For some companies, they have, you know, some type of a, a Rooney rule in play where for every person that they talk to, there's got to be a person of color, you know, and that's great. I don't know if that really means anything if that person of color or or whomever doesn't get hired. Like it's it's still a weird thing that a lot of companies are trying to latch on to. And I don't think there, I mean, there's certainly not a framework out there that works for everyone because every company is different. So you have a lot of people just sort of clumsily trying. It's a trial and error sort of thing. That's sort of where where things are, I think, at the moment. Some folks are doing better than others, but like everyone is just trying. And they're just trying. I mean, sometimes you have to give them the benefit of the doubt. Sometimes you don't. But they are trying. And yeah, that's all I can, that's all, unfortunately, I can really say about that. Yeah. Actually, along the lines about you talked a little bit about your studio lunch and this was a question that Erica sent me. Why did you rebrand the name? Like, talk about your rebranding when you decided to just get rid of the previous name and go for lunch. What led to that? So I started the company and called it 318 Media because, um, one, it was being a little cheeky. It was based off of my birthday, which is March 18th. So it's 318, 318. Here in Atlanta, there's already a 360 Media. There's a 352 Media. And I wanted to still have it be 318 Media, but I didn't want it to be three numbers. So I did the number three, the word 18, like 318 Media. Unfortunately, nobody really gets it right. It becomes a real pain in the ass when you're filling out forms and they don't allow numbers. Mm -hmm. It just started to become more trouble than it was worth. I just kind of got tired of the name myself. 
Uh, I got tired of looking at the logo and I just wanted something that was different and fresh and that just broke out from all of that. And the name had been something I had been kind of kicking around for a few years. Uh, I wanted something that was one word that was simple and to the point that was easy enough for people to get to understand, but also that I feel sums up what the company is about and sort of what my approach is to the work. And so with lunch, the reason I chose lunch is I'm not terribly a morning person and I usually do a lot of my work at night. And so right around lunch is when I get the most stuff done. Like lunch is my like key optimal working time, like from 12 to four or something, I guess. I don't know. That's kind of like the time that I'm really firing at all cylinders. I like doing lunch meetings. I like just doing stuff like that in the middle of the day because I feel like that's when I'm the most alert. And with lunch, it's one of those things where, you know, if you just think of lunch as a concept. You have so many choices for lunch when you're getting ready to eat. There's so many choices depending on where you're at. There's a lot of choices. And so I wanted that to kind of be reflected in just the amount of things that we could offer. So lunch, it's a multidisciplinary creative firm. There are a lot of things that we can offer. We can produce your podcast from the ground up. We can build your website from the ground up. We can do your email marketing. We can do your your branding. We can do your strategy. We can do all of those things. It's really up to you on kind of what you decide to have for lunch. And so that's really kind of where it stuck for me. It just made sense. I went through a few iterations of the logo, the current logo with uh, L-U-N with the joined U-N glyph. I really liked that. And it's it's bold. It's simple. It's to the point. People see it. They say lunch. They're like, I got it. And, you know, just from like a branding standpoint, and it's something that we haven't really done just yet, but we're going to start kind of rolling out throughout the year. Because once we changed the name, whew, the work started coming in. Not that work wasn't coming in before, but the work that I was looking for started coming in. And so there's still more things that I want to do in terms of kind of playing around with lunch and what that means for, say, packaging or I don't know, just other things with the company. Like maybe we release something every few months or something called a snack pack, or we have packages that are like the brown bag, the the bento box. You know, like there's there's like you know little cheeky ways that you can play around with that sort of lunch food concept that also relay well to a studio, to a, a creative studio. So that's that's kind of where we're at now. I know the site right now looks very much like Gotham. It's it's very. <laughs> It's very kind of dark and a little gloomy right now. Uh, that was by Intense. Uh, we'll be changing that up in the spring. So hopefully that'll be coming by the end of March. Okay, cool. Let's talk about your, uh, quickly talk about teaching. Are you currently teaching and how do you fit that into your schedule? <laughs> you got a lot going on. I'm not doing a lot of teaching right now. Uh, for the past few years, I was doing teaching through Media Bistro with a number of different topics I was teaching on. WordPress, on email marketing, digital marketing, a little bit of everything. The last course that I did for them was a a 60-minute email marketing course, which is still available, and a podcasting course. I was really excited about the podcasting course, but Media Bistro has kind of switched their format to just on-demand courses. And so now I'm not really teaching a class like I was teaching. Uh, They actually switched that format over. Uh, right around the beginning of this year. The teaching that I do now is more so, of course, I teach my clients, but I'm going to be starting a design thinking series of talks here in Atlanta for nonprofits. I hope to be starting that either later this month or early next month, where we're talking to nonprofits about how they can use design thinking in their business, whether that's for fundraising, whether it's for you know, gifts, whether it's for events, things of that nature, because fundraising, well, I wouldn't say fundraising for nonprofits. I think design tends to be an afterthought. It's really about making sure that they can get, you know, money in to do the things that they need to do or they want to do. And just having them look at design thinking as a way to kind of put some more intent into the things they do, I think will hopefully go a long way towards having them reach some of the goals that they have. I worked for a nonprofit when I really first started my business uh, from 2010 through 2015 uh, was a, a nonprofit. It's called the Grady Health Foundation, and they support Grady Memorial Hospital, which is the premier level one trauma center here in Atlanta. And so I really got to see firsthand just how powerful design thinking is 
as it relates to fundraising campaigns, as it relates to outreach, even as it relates to their website. I mean, of course, you know, you think design and a website is one thing, but design thinking also takes into account content strategy. How much content are you putting out? Is the content really drawing people in? Is it making them want to, to, you know, purchase? Is it making them want to buy? Like using analytics and data to make sure that you're not just putting something out there and hoping that it works. It's you're putting it out there and you're looking at the data and you're iterating and you're changing to make sure that you're getting closer and closer to your goals based on how your audience reacts. So I think that sort of thing is just super important for nonprofits. It's something that because they're a nonprofit, they may not have access to as a whole because they may have a smaller staff or something. So I want to be able to just bring some of those principles to those agencies and to those organizations to help them as they try to reach their goals. All right. A couple just quick fire questions. If you could have any guest, I know you've got a long list, but is there this guest that you really just cannot wait to talk to on your podcast? I still really want, I'm saying still, I mean, I don't think it's probably a surprise. I really want to interview Eddie Opara for the show. I certainly have interviewed contemporaries and, and peers of his people that know him. I've We've actually spoken via email once. But I know he is someone that is extremely, extremely busy with his work at Pentagram. And of course, it's speaking at a bunch of different, you know, conferences and things like that. Our paths have not crossed yet. Uh, Hopefully they will. But he is someone that I would love to have on the show because I feel that when folks think of a black designer, whether it's a student, whether it's someone who is established in the field, I feel like Eddie Opara's name is always the one that comes up first. He's certainly one that is is very much recognized when I think when people think of black designers that are at the top of their game in the field, his name is like, he's at rare air up there. And so he's someone that I would love to talk to and and get his perspective on just, you know, design and like his career and and what he sees for the future and things like that. I would love to have him on the show. All right. What's something about you that just doesn't really come up, but just like a like, I don't know, like a fun fact about you or an interesting thing that you do that's not really design and like your personal life? I don't know. That's a weird <laughs> question. People ask yeah, it's me. Kind of just a, like, it's I don't kind of know a... what people know about me. <laughs> yeah, that's right. I don't, I don't know what people know about me. I guess I'm would... passionate about that. You don't really get to talk about a lot. I never talk about. Oh, no, I do talk about music, I guess. I was going to say that, but I never really talk about projects that I would like to do. Like there's a lot of stuff that I would like to do that I really keep under wraps. Like I know it and maybe two or three other people know it, but it's certainly not a big public thing. And I would say the the main project, oh, I'm even taking a risk by saying it. The main project I really want to do that I've been kicking around for at least the past 15 years is having my own like comic book universe, like graphic novels, Marvel, DC along those lines. I have been playing around with that idea since high school. I have characters. I've gotten character sketches done. I've written a ton of stuff. I just never put it out there for the public. Like, I don't know if it's ready or not. And I keep trying to do things that I hope will kickstart me into, you know, saying, yeah, this is when you do it. Like, for example, I went to a, um, I went to a, a black comic book convention that was here in town a few weeks ago called OnyxCon. And I went to go and try to like get inspired and like see what other people were doing. Not to say that the people there didn't do great work. They had some great stuff out there, but it didn't move me to want to get my stuff out there. I guess I just don't feel like I've got the team together. Like I I would write it. I wouldn't draw it because I, I suck at drawing, but I would want to have like an illustrator or someone that I could partner with to kind of put my idea out there because I think it's a really good idea. It's an idea that I've been, again, I've been toying with and refining for the past 15 years. And I would really love to put it out there and see what people's reaction is to it. I just haven't, I just haven't done it. I haven't done it yet. Maybe, I don't know. We'll see how revision path goes in terms of, (laughs) in terms of its growth. And maybe that will give me the opportunity to, to do something like this and have it on a larger platform. But right now it's still, it exists in my mind. It exists in you know, folders and scraps of paper around my apartment, but it's there's nothing that I really put online for public consumption 
about this idea. And so that's so that's kinda, what's kind of stopping you from reaching out? I mean, do you have like a short list of potential realistic partners to draw this what's kind of the hold up no i don't the the person that i had to i mean she's great she's a a storyboard artist now for wb she did a bunch of character sketches for me i I paid her to do a bunch of stuff and it's great but i know she doesn't have the time to like draw a whole book and i don't think i would want her to draw a whole book I, i like her style i don't know how well that would translate her style is more for animation i should say in terms of how it looks as opposed to comic books which can be which can vary. I have not reached out to any artists or anything. In terms of writing, I haven't really written anything that I feel is super cohesive. I sort of got a bunch of rough outlines of where, of like the backstory, like I have a lot of backstory and setting and stuff, but not really like a super clear plot. I think I have really great, well-developed characters. I'm just not really sure what they would do once they are out there. So, you know, it's it's kind of the sort of thing where I just need the time to to put it all together because I've kept it on the back burner for so long. It's usually something I just touch on here or there. It's not something I devote a ton of time to. So, as far as what's stopping me, I'm stopping me. <laughs> I am definitely the one that is stopping me from getting it done right now. So if someone listening to this podcast, for example, was like, I'll, I'll, I can draw, I can collaborate with you on this, maybe, would you be open to people hitting you up? I would totally be open to All it. Right. Because I want to get it out of my head. And I'll, like, I feel like, and this is probably a really grandiose thing to say, but I feel like that would be my magnum opus. That would be the thing that I would be the most proud of, I feel, of all of the work that I've done is getting that out there into the ether, into the, the general consciousness for people to, to see these characters and know these characters and, and hopefully love these characters. Like the goal of like seeing a little kid dressed up as one of my characters for Halloween or something would, would like blow my mind just to do something that ends up becoming a part of the general like pop culture ethos would be, I'd love that. That would be great. That'd be really great. All right. Well, that, that No, really, that's a really interesting thing. And I feel like you do have a lot of design and illustrator connections that perhaps there's someone out there listening who was just looking for the writer to get involved. So hopefully... I mean, let me know. Yeah. I'm, <laughs> I am up for it. Again, I've had some of these, these drawings and things for so long and some of these characters, I just feel like I don't want to miss that opportunity. I don't want that window of opportunity to close where... Now I'm too old to do it, you know. Not saying that I think age would be a deterrent, but... You just don't have the energy. Yeah, like I want to get to the point where it's something that I can really devote my time to it and and see it happen, you know. Yeah. Okay, well, we're in at like 120 almost, so we're... Obviously, people know where to find you, but just put all your links out there, all the way they can contact you. Okay, so the main way folks can contact me is... uh, probably through Twitter. My Twitter name is just at Maurice Cherry and my email address is in my bio. Uh, there's my website, which is not really a website. It's just a one pager, mauricecherry.com. I have a newsletter that people can sign up for there that I sort of update every now and then when I feel like it, I'm really bad at it, but there's a newsletter people can sign up for. And then I have my Tumblr, which is blog.mauricecherry.com. That's pretty much you have the revision it. Oh, my company. Slack? Oh, yeah. Well, yeah, of course, Revision Path is revisionpath.com or on Facebook and Twitter, as well as Slack, revisionpath.com forward slash Slack. If that's not working for some reason, just refresh the page. I know it's been acting up lately. And then my company is Lunch, and that's at yepitslunch.com, Y-E-P-I-T-S-L-U-N-C-H.com. It's also at Yep It's Lunch on Facebook and Twitter as well. Awesome. I definitely encourage everyone to join the Slack. It's it's a wonderful community. That's how I ended up doing this interview. And it's just as someone who just graduated from a development boot camp and has a like a you know, research design background, it's just the perfect place for me. Especially in- Yeah, join the Slack and say hey, like get some conversation started. Like I try to pop in there at least every day just to kinda see what the tenor of the room is, but please go in there and talk it up. Get some conversation started. Get to know some people. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I guess with that said, I'm Brandy Brown, and I'll be on the Slack. You can find me on Twitter on it's the Brandy I T S the Brandy with an I, and I'm just happy that Maurice let me do this. It's awesome. Pretty cool. 
So, yeah, thanks so much, Maurice. Thank you. Thank you for, I'm saying thank you for having me. It's my show. But <laughs> thank you for interviewing me. This was fun. I like yeah, it. Yeah, I'm glad that I think it's always important to know who's behind the mic. And I think people forget about that sometimes. So, yay. Yay, absolutely. Thoughts of love are in your mind. And that's it for this week. Big thanks to Brandy Brown for interviewing me. And of course, thanks to you for listening. You can find out more about me and my work through the links in the show notes at revisionpath.com. Thanks, of course, as always, to our sponsors, Facebook Design, MailChimp, and Hover. Facebook Design works on an enormous and diverse range of interesting problems. No one designs at scale quite like Facebook does, and that scale is only matched by their commitment to giving back to the design community. Learn more about designing at Facebook at facebook.com forward slash design. When it comes to email marketing, MailChimp makes it simple. They have great in-depth reporting, new and improved autoresponder features, and you can send 12,000 emails to 2,000 subscribers for free. No contract and no credit card required. Check them out at MailChimp.com. Hover takes all the hassle and confusion out of buying and managing your domain. Search for a few keywords and Hover will show you the best available options across all the domain extensions out there. Ready to get started? Save 10% off your first purchase by using the promo code REVISIONPATH at checkout. This episode was edited by R.J. Basilio and produced by me, Maurice Cherry. Our intro is by Music Man Dre with intro and outro audio by Yellow Speaker. Make sure you subscribe to us on iTunes. Leave us a rating and a review. It really helps us get new listeners. I'll even read your review right here on the show. Revision Path is brought to you by Lunch, a multidisciplinary creative studio in Atlanta, Georgia. If you like the work Revision Path is doing with the podcast and the website, then visit us over at Patreon and become a patron. Just go to patreon.com forward slash revision path and pledge your support. Pledge level started just $1 per month and you'll get access to behind the scenes information about the show, upcoming interviews, and so much more. Thanks so much for listening. Three years. I can't believe it's been three years since I started revision path. This is crazy. Again, thank you so much and we'll see you next time. Revision path.